0: you're listening to The Main Course, where food is serious business. Listen along for insights, strategies, forecasts, and thought leadership from the front lines of food with your host, Barbara Castiglia. Welcome to the main course, I'm Barbara Castiglia of Modern Restaurant Management, and today we're going to talk about having your finger on the pulse of everything that's kind of going on now in the restaurant industry, um, particularly with uh, the digitization and um, and the kind of the future of restaurants and and how a, we kind of fast-forwarded on the future a little bit. The pandemic kind of fueled a lot, um, but what's the future of restaurants really going to look uh, going to look like? Um, so with me are Meredith Sandlin and Carl Orsborn, who are the authors of this really great book that I recommend called Delivering the Digital Restaurant. Um, uh, welcome. Um, you know, first let's, let's go into your backgrounds, um, to get a little bit of your expertise about, you know, why you're writing this book.
1: Yeah, sure. I'll start. I, uh spent the last decade or so in restaurants I uh, was at Taco Bell owned by Yum Brands worked on the brand turnaround there and then went over into real estate development uh, where I built about a thousand Taco Bells not not by myself with a wonderful team and about halfway through that journey started to realize that the omni-channel disruption that was affecting retail was starting to affect restaurants and I wished for a commissary where I could just deliver tacos out the door, uh, and not have a restaurant, particularly in places like Manhattan where delivery had taken off very early and where rents were very expensive and no such thing existed at the time. So when I met the guys at kitchen United and saw what they were up to, I was very excited. I went over there, um, became employee number four, Uh, joined the concept to help create the business model and raise all the initial funds and all that fun stuff. And that is where my story intersects with Carl. So I'll hand it off to him.
2: Yeah. Thanks again for having us, Barbara. It's great to be here. Um, My story actually is largely with the convenience retail world. I spent 18 years with BP and uh, 15 of those 18 years were in the C-store space. Uh, And that culminated in me running the AMPM retail business, which is a thousand gas stations sea stores across the west coast of the u s and it was really through that that I saw just the change in landscape for how the u s consumer was becoming increasingly um, you know confident about what they could actually choose to eat, and that their demands really were increasing in the sense of wanting to have healthier for you food and food that they could really have a greater level of transparency for and It was really through that that I just saw the the, the disruption starting to occur. At least in the US, Um, certainly I'd seen it in the UK before, but it was when I uh, had left BP and I was networking around and a mutual friend of Meredith and ours introduced us. Um, I met this lady called Meredith and Meredith had also left a huge business and had gone into a startup, which was something that I was keen to do as well. And I learned about this concept called a ghost kitchen. And I had never heard of it before. Little did I know that I'd actually been running a network of a thousand ghost kitchens in many ways before that. But uh, in that sense, when Meredith asked me to come on board and run operations and customer success, it it really gave me a great insight not only into the world of a startup, but also into this incredible ecosystem of restaurants that are looking to change and move with the times. So, And even those that were looking to work in a ghost kitchen environment, which of course was pre-pandemic at this stage, a lot of them were actually still struggling. To adapt to change and we were driving back um from pasadena and the kitchen united headquarters one day and i i said to meredith i said look it'd be really nice it'd be really nice if we could just find a book and give that to each of our restaurant customers just so they can understand why this is all happening and and to really understand some of the best practices that exist out there and of course a book did not exist Uh, and so it was for that reason why when we left kitchen united and uh, we started to put together our plans for writing this book and it was really through that that we were able to speak to a hundred or so different industry executives in both the restaurant world and the tech world and really come together and hopefully um, put together the account of why this change is actually a force for good for the industry why it shouldn't be looked upon as a something that the technology companies are doing to to restaurants but actually that the consumer ultimately is driving this change as they have done, in many other verticals, and so, yeah, that's that's our story, and uh, we've been enjoying this kind of rides ever since. And thanks again for having us.
0: So, what was your writing process like? How did you guys decide? You know, this is this is what we're going to focus on, and this is how we're going to do it.
1: Well, mm. if I had
2: my way, it would, it would have been a trilogy. <laughs> um, and so I, I'll tell you <laughs> first, first of all, the editorial knife on uh, Meredith's <laughs> side of the was very very strong, so that helped.
0: You
1: know, it it was. Um, actually really fun and a great project for the pandemic. So we started writing before the pandemic. um, And as you said, the pandemic in many ways accelerated a change that was already occurring. Um, Little did we know how quickly things would accelerate. But, you know, I don't know if you remember the early days of the pandemic. We were all like sitting home, not allowed to go anywhere, couldn't talk to anyone. And everyone was suddenly on Zoom. So it was fantastic because we were able to Um, develop a way of working together remotely, Um, we talk to each other every day. um, And, you know, there were a couple different pieces to it. The first was really figuring out what the arc of the book would be like, um, what each chapter was about. And then the second was figuring out who we wanted to interview for each one of those chapters. I think we naively thought early on, like, oh, we know what's going on. We'll just, you know, write what we think. But it turns out there's so many amazing people uh, in the restaurant industry, whether they're restaurateurs or tech people or property people, uh, doing such interesting things that hearing directly from them and being able to include them in the book turned out to be an incredible boon. And um, it's not, not clear that we would have had such great access if they too were not stuck at home because right. of the pandemic. So um, that was really fantastic. And then we did a lot of co-writing um, through Google Docs, which again is something that would only happen um, in the pandemic. So we would have like a brainstorm session and we'd be able to like see what the other one was writing and take each other's words and edit them a little bit. Um, So in many ways, the process of writing the book was a highly digital one that echoed many of the themes that we were writing about in the book. And frankly, same thing with now selling the book. Um, A lot of what we're doing uh, in how we market the book is very similar to what we talk about um, in the marketing chapters of the book. So it was, it was really a lot of fun.
2: It was a lot of fun. I think, I think uh, credit goes to both of our spouses who uh, were wondering why are these two talking to each other every day? And <laughs> Meredith the other day called me up and said, I haven't spoken to you in three days and we, we, we should really catch up on something. But so it's, it's been a fun process, but you know i i think the the book would not be what it would be if we weren't able to speak to these folks and and the thing is is that a lot of the the innovators that we spoke to had been working on this for years and years you know noah glass who, who i'm sure you've spoken to on many occasions barbara you know when you think of it and hear his story and how he saw the future well over a decade ago 2006 i think it was it just shows you how um these visionaries really saw a future for for our industry and. You know, we, we were very clear on our kind of target audience for the book we, we did want this to be for restaurants you know it wasn't um being done for a pr purpose for a particular company we were very clear on trying to be very unbiased particularly around any one particular company and so it was it was important that the restaurants felt that we were on their side and and trying to give their perspective but also their challenge right the challenge of what they're having to go through because the the enormity of change Not only because of the pandemic, not only because of the labor crisis, but also just the amount of new solutions that are giving them access to what before would have only been available to the very biggest of restaurant chains and the vast resources that they have access to.
0: So let's get to the, I guess, the meat of the book a little bit. Um, Can you define the digital disruption of the restaurant industry and, and kind of when it started and then, you know, how it was really
1: propelled by the pandemic? on that question one is what is the disruption that is happening and then two um what exactly is a digital restaurant kind of in response to that disruption um i'll answer the first part and then hand it off to carl i think the disruption that is occurring is primarily one of shifting from a on-premise anonymous customer mindset to an e-commerce mindset And everything that goes along with that, the the primacy of data, the ability to interact with your customers in a different way through digital formats, uh, the ability to have one to one relationships with your customers and um, the ability to um, really be thinking about the lifetime value of each customer and how you acquire them and then remarket to them on an ongoing basis.
2: Yes, and to the the second part of the question about, you know, the digital restaurant, what exactly is that? The the way I often answer that question, Barbara, is it's about being where your customer is in the first instance, In, in, in the sense that you've got to be able to recognize now that there are so many different channels to be able to connect with your customer, and it's about being able to do that and to be able to do it in as frictionless a manner as possible. But I think we're also finding that a digital restaurant is not just about the consumer relationship with the the restaurant. It's also about the way in which the restaurant exists in a wider digital ecosystem, from labor software to the ability for you to manage your inventory to everything associated with your back of house and optimizing your processes. All of these things come together in a digital ecosystem now that is something that just did not exist 10 years or so ago. And uh, the term we often use is the satisfaction of the industry. Um, and that's great because, as I mentioned, it gives this opportunity for restaurants to be able to get access to now what is considered affordable technology and solutions. The biggest challenge is figuring out what exactly you should use and how to select it as well, right? And, and I think that is a real challenge. And we see it regularly at the conferences that we attend and speak at is just that that deer in the headlights kind of picture of a restaurant owner going, "Well, where do I start? You know, where do I go from here?"
0: Well, I think there's a lot of restaurants that you know jumped on the QR code bandwagon in the pandemic, out of necessity, and are now re- reassessing. And they're saying, "Hey, this worked for me, but what's the next step? You know, what do I need to do to reach our guests?" Um, you know, one of the things that I took away from your book was the impact of the next generation restaurant owners who are kind of fueling this digital disruption. Um, And I remember speaking with someone a couple of years ago who had come up with a tech solution to do inventory. And the reason he did it was because he would sit with his father in the back of the restaurant and his father was sitting there counting things. And he's like, Dad, there's a better way. I'm going to figure it out. And he did. He came up with some kind of solution. So how are these, you know, maybe more millennial or
1: other generational, how are they kind of fueling this digital disruption? We have heard that story from so many founders. It's incredible where they say, well, my my parents were franchisees of XYZ or my um, dad had his own independent Italian restaurant. And uh, there are so many of these kids of restaurateurs who are like, gosh, the way that you're doing things probably made sense when you started, but now there's so many new tools and we can do it in a new way. Um, and that is a, is a story that it, we've heard over and over and over again as we've gone through writing this book, um, which is pretty cool. And I think part of the thing that's different um, certainly is that you know, as they are out in the world exposed to all of these things and other verticals, they see like, okay, this is how it's done in retail. When I'm a customer of retail, why couldn't you do it that way also in restaurants, right? So part of it is just seeing it. Part of it is that technology has fundamentally changed. And uh, by that I mean we've gone through this huge cloud-based SaaS revolution and technology that democratizes access to technology um, to a lot of different people. And I think you know you see that in your own life as your ability to access you know thousands and thousands of different apps on the app store. Um, your ability to, you know, you want to get a better solution for calendaring, you can get Calendly. If you want to get better at writing emails, you can get Grammarly. Like there's all of these things out there that you can just pay a monthly fee um, and get access to, which was not true before the cloud revolution occurred. And so you have these kids, um, maybe millennials, maybe Gen I don't know, these really young people who are exposed in different parts of their lives to different way of interacting as a consumer, And then you combine that with their knowledge of these new cloud-based technologies, and bam, they put that together with their sort of underlying um, understanding of the restaurant industry because they've grown up in it. And all of a sudden, you get these really neat solutions. Um, And I think those uh, parents in the restaurant industry who have kids this age, they're super lucky because those kids can help them see um, some of the things that might not be as obvious to them um, for those of us who are, you know, all right.
2: Talk for yourself. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the the way I would frame something about, which is really important to us about why why the book uh, is written in the way that it is, is about trying to drive the mindset shift of those that are perhaps trying to figure this out or are resistant to change in some way. And so I'm, I'm cognizant of, calling next gen restaurant owners a particular phrase because in many ways, some of these folks are not next gen restaurant owners. They have just had a more willing um, mindset to be able to accept some of these changes and see that they need to move on with the times in this regard. And then, you know, as Meredith just explained, there are these folks that have come from a restaurant background that have then taken their careers in a technology direction to be able to then come back to the industry and say, look, we we can help. But I think uh, those that Aren't, um, aren't being held back by the way things just are, and I'm just saying, look, if we were to rewrite the script here, how would we do this? They're the ones that are embracing the change the best.
0: So, how tech savvy does the average restaurant owner need to be right now?
2: Well, I think um, I think from a tech savviness standpoint, it really depends on where their starting point is. Um, ultimately. It's about doing change and taking change on at the pace that you can actually take it on and recognize you don't have to be there overnight. Um, one thing I would say is, is that the, the, the best at this, uh, you know, when you think about what the third parties have invested in, making things very usable and easy, that they have a very seamless process of being able to get a restaurant onto a third party platform and making it easy. The challenge is this though. The challenge is understanding what are the basics of being able to optimize your presence in a third party. And then what are the, what are the steps you need to take to be able to build a first party interface so that your access to consumers becomes a bit more direct? So you can start to get access to consumer data. And then once you've got access to consumer data, how do you actually think about technology from the standpoint of having a database to then understand who those customers are to start segmenting them and and therefore remarket to them and be able to communicate to them to drive basket, to drive frequency. All of that is a bit of a digital maturity curve, if you will. Um, And when you hear it all in my 32nd description, it can sound very, very challenging, but it's about just taking each bit at a time and recognizing know perfect and optimize yourself on each stage and then from that utilize the customer success teams again a lot of these technology companies have in place to really you know hold your hand on that journey
1: back of house uh technologies as well uh you don't have to put them all in at once you don't have to make the best possible choice of an all-in-one solution that will solve all your problems you can look at where your pain points are and say, you know, what's the best solution to solve that particular pain point, start there and then migrate as you learn more, right? So if you know that you have a really big pain point, which many restaurants do right now in the supply chain inventory and food cost area, uh, where it's difficult to, you know, procure the right things, not have a lot of waste and price things correctly because there's so much change going on right now, then maybe the best place to start is really understanding How your recipes relate to your ingredients there's great technology out there for that and how those then ingredients relate to cost and supply chain there's great technology out there for that Um, and really focusing there maybe you find that your biggest problem is labor right now which again that, that is a challenge for a lot of restaurants so that might be a good place to start and uh figuring out how to optimize your schedule, figuring out how to better communicate with your uh, workforce who might uh, be trending a bit younger and is used to texting and talking on their phones uh, rather than looking at say, like a, a printed uh, schedule hung on a cork board. Um, that might be a really great place to start for you. And there's good you know, one-off software that you can access again for a monthly fee to start with that. You don't have to make, the best, most amazing decision of, you know, going through a big RFP to figure out which piece of technology should I use? You can take a look at two or three online, put it in place, see how it goes and go from there.
2: I've recognized that there are many different platforms that you can use for numerous purposes. So you, you, you think of the, the TikToks of this world that are, can be used potentially for influencers and being able to drive attention to your restaurant brand. Well, guess what? It can also be a great place for you to recruit people. Right, so it's be, be where either your customers are, be where your employees or your future employees are, and utilize these different platforms for different purposes, depending on what your driving requirement is.
0: So you hit on staffing, supply chain. Um, what are, are some other key challenges that you see restaurants are facing right now? Um, and do you have any any solutions or any advice?
1: platforms Um, and i think particularly over the last two years as they've grown tremendously as consumers maybe haven't felt comfortable coming into a dine-in setting or even as restaurants have been actually closed down by the local municipalities um, there is a dependence on these third-party channels to get access to consumers but there's also a love-hate relationship between the restaurants and the third parties right and I think um, some of them do better than others in responding to that feeling and helping to gain the trust of the restaurants, right? I think DoorDash in particular has done a really good job of saying, you know what, your channel, our channel, we don't care, we'll still be your back end, which I think shows that they're trying to support the restaurants and succeeding. That's great. Um, But, you know, I think it's important to embrace the third parties for the role that they play and to stop having this love-hate relationship. Because as long as you're in this love-hate relationship, your restaurant is going to, you know, feel a little bit like they're second-class citizens. I can turn off the platform whenever I want because it's low margin. Like your, your restaurant itself is going to um, embrace that feeling and it's going to show up in all kinds of negative behavior that you don't want. Because from the consumer standpoint, they have no idea how much restaurants make in different channels. Right. They have no idea what your uh, contract is with DoorDash or Uber Eats. And all they know is I went to look for you and one day you were there, the next day you weren't. Or I ordered something via a third party platform. And it took forever to get to me because you deprioritized that order. Right. That, that's what they're seeing. And so thinking through and saying, okay, the third parties are an important part of our um, portfolio here. They are a channel that number one, brings us new customers who are um, looking for food and they're in an active purchase decision making cycle. And so that is the right place to grab them. Super important. Number two, there are certain segments of consumers who are going to use third party. They're never gonna use first party. That's just not, not how they shop and, If you want access to those consumers, you need to be where they are. And then number three, knowing that if you acquire a new customer on the third party, you have the opportunity to bring them to the first party. Um, These are all reasons why you can't just treat it as a second class channel and hope that somehow it turns out, right? You got to treat it as importantly as that guest walking in your front door, um, but then figure out how to use it appropriately for each different consumer segment.
0: So Mm. how do you use it appropriately? Are there, do you offer a smaller menu? Do you offer a menu that is easily easy to execute and deliver? Um, You know, how do they, how do restaurants kind of make it work for them?
2: Yeah, I think it's all, it's all of that, Barbara. That's a a great starting point in the sense of making sure the menu is indeed optimized for off-premise. You don't have to replicate your on-premise menu in an off-premise world. What you do have to be able to do is make sure that anything you are offering through a third-party channel or a first-party channel is something that you can do consistently, accurately, and deliver on time. Here's a very uh, quick hack for you. Uh, Any item that takes more than 10 minutes, and you've told DoorDash or Reels takes more than 10 minutes, it's going to then go into the algorithm on on those platforms where it's going to add 20 minutes or more for the delivery. And so therefore, if it's more than 10 minutes, you're straight away going to be off the carousel for uh, food within 30 minutes or less. So straight away, you're missing out on a huge amount of customers that are potentially wanting food right now. And, and quite honestly, regardless of the algorithm and the amount of time they put on it, people will order, they go onto these platforms when they're hungry. So if you can't get food to them within that kind of time frame, then you're up against it anyway to be actually optimized from that standpoint. Yeah.
1: And so your slowest item can slow down your entire restaurant, right? Because DoorDash doesn't know when, when a consumer comes on that they're looking for a particular item. So if you have one item that takes 20 minutes to prepare and therefore you set your entire restaurant to a 20-minute prep time and then they add 20 minutes to that and all of a sudden it's you know 40 minutes to get to a consumer, you're now off the rapid carousel. But it's that one item that's causing the problem. Maybe right. you shouldn't order that, um, offer that on the third-party platforms. Everything else, if you can make it within 10 minutes, guess what? All of a sudden your restaurant is in that rapid-order carousel.
2: Digital hospitality is like, probably one of the biggest opportunities right now i think those customers that have experienced uh, a food delivery for the first or second time in the last year or so it, it, they might not come back to it unless us as an industry start to improve our focus on restaurant 101 and, and i think that really is one of the biggest challenges that restaurant owner operators they know how to fix this because they do it every day for their on-premise customers the way to, to really look at it is experience this as a customer yourself you know I, I do a few off-premise review videos on our blog for, with the with the monday minute and and part of that is just to show the guest experience uh, and that touches on everything from the ordering interface you know when you open up a pdf menu and you've got blurry photos through to the actual place when you have to walk up and you have your you're walking up and you're you don't know where to wait to collect your pickup order all of these things are points of friction and they're points that create a, what I would call a second rate experience for your guest. And if you pick up on what Meredith was touching on earlier with regards to when a third party channel is shut off or digital ordering is shut off, it is the equivalent of shutting your doors to your guests. And when would you ever do that? When would you ever do that for an on-premise customer? You wouldn't, you'd say, actually, you know what, you we'll come back in half an hour, we're gonna have some space then. or we'll take a seat at the bar and we can get some appetizers there. That's what you would do for the on-premise customer. So how can we create a better, more digitally hospitable environment for our off premise customer and restaurants have the answer for this in a a way that the technology companies do not.
0: So why is delivery the new drive through?
2: I, I think this is uh, one of our favorite chapters and okay. I'll, I'll kick it off and then Meredith will <laughs> yeah. take it through because she she loves this. I think it's one of her favorites actually. <laughs> yeah. but, um, it's a good one. <laughs> we, we, um, we put it very early in the book and we put it there largely because we were trying to say um, it's one of the biggest changes to the industry since drive through. But also when you look at the story of drive through and the way in which it was adopted and integrated into the restaurant business model in the US, what, 50, 60 years or so ago, A, it took a long time and B, it wasn't particularly successful when it was treated as a latch onto the side of the business. And that is where we are today. Delivery in many ways, um, perhaps with the exception of the, the kind of primary of the pandemic, has been treated as this kind of add-on to the business. You know, we're kind of begrudging the idea of it. And it's, it's not only therefore uneconomic, but it also creates operational headaches to actually incorporate it. And the reason drive-through today is as effective as it is, is because it has been completely integrated into the entirety of the restaurant operating system uh, so that it is a seamless kind of experience for the guest, And so therefore guests can experience drive-through and not have that interrupt the on-premise experience and vice versa.
1: That's exactly right. There's a consumer operational and economic piece here. Um, Carl, I think just took us very well through the operational piece. The consumer piece is, if going through a drive-through is convenient, which it is. And that's why it's taken off. And Americans love convenience. What's more convenient than going through a drive through Having the food brought to you, like not having to get in your car and go over there in the first place, right? So um, certainly from that standpoint, uh, delivery is a new drive through And then from an economic standpoint, I think you know, again, going back to that love-hate relationship, many of us are in this place where, we're like, begrudgingly serving off premise, even through our first-party channels, where we're like, eh, "I'm really a dine-in restaurant, and what I care about is that, and I don't really love this other thing." And um, often, regardless of which channel the customer came through, they get a you know second-class sort of situation and how they're treated. And I think that stems from. A an unease from the restaurateur that they're actually making money with these off premise sales, and a lack of trust that this is a good thing to do. And when I look at drive through, I would be very hard pressed to say that drive through hasn't been accretive to the restaurant industry. Right. right. We now have tons and tons of drive throughs all across the country, purpose built facilities for drive through. Um, it has absolutely been incremental sales to the industry as the industry has grown over time to actually eclipse food at home and, and grocery. And those businesses are super profitable. Right. So for those of us who are like, eh, I'm not really sure it's incremental. I think delivery is taking from my dine in business, which probably has very much felt that way and been true over the last two years because of the pandemic. But for those of us who begrudgingly see it as something that's taking away from a more profitable channel, that mindset is going to prevent us from getting to a place where we design a business that can be fully profitable because it is um, focused on integrating off-premise, as Carl suggested in the operations. And as we shift our mindsets to say, actually, this is an incremental and profitable channel, let's design it to make it incremental and off uh, profitable. Once we get to that point, you will start to see new business models emerge the way that a fully integrated drive-through emerged and became an integrated, um, incremental, and profitable channel for the industry.
0: So whenever I read a book, um, phrases just kind of pop out at me when I'm going through it, and, and those are the things that either they speak to me or... I just want to know, you know, what was the mindset behind this? So the one thing, um, well, there's more than one in your book, but the one thing that, um, that really spoke to me was, um, that you wrote the restaurant business is built on pride and trust. Um, so, you know, what does, what does pride and trust in the restaurant industry mean to you?
2: Well, for, for me, I think this comes back to why did someone get involved in the restaurant business anyway? Um, And typically the folks that I speak to say they get into it because they love people and they love food. And when they, they, the most joy they get from being in this business is seeing the joy on their guests faces when they're experiencing both the service and the food that they're enjoying. And so in that sense, it's that pride in what they've been able to accomplish, but it's then also seeing the recurring guests that have come back and a recurring guest, is about trust. It's about someone that has said, wow, I've had a great experience here. And now as a result of this, I wanna come back. I trust you again to come back and I want to come back again with you. And I think this is uh, why today restaurants have even changed their designs up to incorporate trust into it. You think about the, in comparison to 20 years ago, the amount of restaurants where you wouldn't even be able to look inside the kitchen. And now you look at the the amount of open plan kitchens that basically there's restaurants saying, look at us, trust that we can make your food in this kind of fashion. Look at the credible kind of chefs and hardworking employees that are actually hardworking in the background, making your dish today. I think this is where, when we talk about a digital environment, and certainly when you add the logistics aspect of it in terms of trusting drivers and tamper-proof packaging and things like that, um, this is where a guest still has a level of, not distrust, but they're still waiting to feel um, like the digital experience can be as as good as an on-premise experience. And I think uh, every touchpoint, every touchpoint that you have with a guest in a digital experience, regardless of third parties, by the way, is an opportunity to say, how do we make this great in an off-premise world in the same way as we do in an on-premise world? And there are still some big steps that collectively we need to work through to be able to ensure that we get that trust. And then once that trust is in place, we can talk about being proud of it.
0: What are some of those big steps that you think we need to work
2: on? uh, Consumer experience, one. Uh, Think about the last uh, delivery that you might have had, Barbara, um, and where something went wrong. So today, actually, it was only last weekend, uh, I had an issue with a particular order, and within six minutes of me chatting to someone on DoorDash about it, I had a $40 credit. Now, that's value out of the system, whether it's coming from the restaurant, whether it's coming out of DoorDash, that's value out of the system. And in a on-premise world, what happens when there's a problem with your order? Well, first of all, it, it's dealt with proactively. Someone comes up and says, How is your food? And you're able to actually answer and say, well, actually, there's, so, there's an issue here with it in some way. Today, the experience of being able to s- support that isn't done until after the transaction. You get a, a feedback rating that you get requested for m- many minutes after you've eaten. Uh, when there's an issue, when something perhaps is going to be delayed, and in the in the book we we reference this in, in an example i think uh with regard to a vegas hotel about how someone that is delivering room service that knows it's going to be de- delayed offers a chocolate covered strawberry just as a way of being able to say look we're sorry we're late how many of those little touches those little touches of hospitality could be added in to a digital experience i think that's a that's a, 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 an answer that can be done right now of every single restaurant that offers off-premise and so it's it's those little things, the little touches, those kind of aspects of hospitality that I think need to come through in a digital sense, too.
1: Um, those are all kind of operations and fulfillment things that absolutely need to happen on the back end. There's probably some digital UI, UX things that need to happen on the front end as well. And. Um, for those listeners who haven't done this, I strongly encourage them to access their restaurant and place an order through every channel they have available. So if they're on Uber Eats, do Uber Eats. If they're on DoorDash, do DoorDash. If they have a first party channel, do the first party channel. If they still take phone calls, make a phone call. Go through every single channel and see what that consumer experience is like because typically what you'll find, and if you find this um, good news, you have great opportunity, Typically, what you'll find is that the first-party process is somehow clunky and not as good as the third-party process from a digital ordering interface. And so there's an opportunity to make that easy, to make it more frictionless, and therefore to make consumers more likely to use it. Um, and then if you couple that with doing some of the things Carl's talking about on the fulfillment logistics backend, um, you make a seamless consumer journey that is so good that consumers are impressed by it, right? And they want to come back. They want to use your first-party channel because it's fantastic.
2: Yeah, count the clicks. That's that's a phrase I often use, Barbara. Count the clicks between your third-party platform and your first-party platform. And then, you know, if you want to see the best-in-class, go to Amazon and count the amount of clicks it takes to be able to buy something. That that's, that that's They're setting the standard in so many ways. And that's a great way of you being able to say, okay, what can I do to make this easier?
0: We've talked a lot about the guest experience and um, you know, and what guests want, but you know, what, what do guests want now? Um, I know you talk a lot in the book about the, uh, the importance of personalization. Um, So how, how, how do restaurateurs best meet the guests now for what their needs are? You know, and we're still during the pandemic at this point, um you know how do they how do they address all of those needs that they're hearing from their from their guests
1: it's absolutely huge um and certainly the the younger you go in generations the more they demand personalization and expect it and a lot of that is coming from their experiences in other verticals where Um, you know, my Facebook is different from your Facebook, right? At the the most basic level, like we just expect that we're going to have a personalized experience because of what happens to us elsewhere. And then when we get to restaurants, we carry those expectations with us as consumers. Now, in the case of personalization, I think there is a clear tension here between what we as restaurant people want to offer and what the consumer is starting to demand in the sense that Many of us are in this industry because we love food, because we are trained chefs, because we think that we put something together in the right way. And that's how we want the consumer to experience it. And when a consumer says, actually, no, for me, no lemon. We have a little bit of a reaction to that where we go, but lemon is critical to this dish. It will be awful without the lemon. Right. Um, And. So figuring out how to incorporate personalization um, in a way that doesn't feel like it is at odds with your menu design, I think is in part a change of mindset um, and in part uh, a change of process. And by what I mean there is if you have this mindset that says, no, but I designed these dishes, dishes on purpose this way. Um, let's say someone is allergic to one of the ingredients and they want to ask for it not to be there. Well, if you have a mindset that says it should be the way that I want it to be, um, you know, this dish has tomatoes and and why would anyone say no tomatoes? If if you therefore have that mindset, you're more likely to have a write-in text box on your online ordering where someone writes no tomatoes. And the odds that an online text box where someone free writes However, they write notes because most people are going to write something crazy like I am allergic and please don't do this and do this instead. Some long essay that once it gets to your kitchen line, maybe gets truncated or maybe gets misunderstood. Like, it's just terrible. Right. But if instead you have the mindset of. You know what? People do like customization and some people really, you know, don't want gluten. Some people really can't have tomatoes, whatever it is. Um, And giving them the ability to easily, say, um, click that off and say, no, 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 or add extra of this instead, in a much more checkmark-based way, makes it much more likely that once it gets to the kitchen, it's easily understood. Therefore, you're not going to have rework and waste, um, and you're not going to upset a consumer who thought that they asked for something a certain way and received it a different way.
2: Yeah, I love that. I I think there's... uh... There's an angle here as well around, again, using that proxy that we were discussing earlier between what's an on premise personalization experience and you think of your favorite restaurant, Barbara, where you are and when when you go out to it, you know, I love it because when I go to my favorite restaurant, they recognize myself, my wife, they perhaps remember that this is our favorite bottle of wine or what we ordered last time. That comes when you get the very best service and that isn't something you're going to get consistently across every restaurant experience. I think the power of today's digitization uh, is going to enable every customer to have that level of recognition being applied to them every single time. That's huge. That That's a level of, of personalization. You just will not be able to replicate it in an on-premise setting. Uh, and I and I think that's where uh, it, we really do have quite an exciting future ahead of ourselves. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I think the vast majority of restaurants that are utilizing personalized Marketing campaigns right now are doing it in a relatively segmented fashion. They're probably targeting lapsed customers, new customers, customers' birthdays, things like that. But I, but I do think there's a way in which things are going to evolve, whereby every single order that you have made is going to shape the way in which the platform will recommend to you what you should eat. Or drink, and and therefore avoid certain things. And the way I often phrase this is: if you have said to me that um, I, uh, that as a customer, you are a, a vegan, why on earth am I even putting a menu in front of you with non-vegan items on it? That just doesn't make any sense. Just save me, the, save me the time to having to review those items, um, and that will make me feel that you know me, and therefore, guess what? Now I can trust you, and now I can actually come back to you more often.
0: So. What do you hope readers take away from the book?
2: Well, I I hope, first of all, they find it of help and assistance. You know, Meredith and I wrote the book with the intent for it to help our industry. Um, We are passionate about particularly the independent restaurants that are the lifeblood of many of our economies. And I think it's really important that they continue to exist and continue to thrive. We've lost nearly 100,000 of them because of the pandemic effect. We don't want to lose any more. And we want to enable every restaurateur, someone that loves this business in the way that they have perhaps for the last 20 years, to continue to thrive in the next 20. And part of that is about trying to encourage the mindset shift, that actually a digital restaurant is actually something that can be really exciting for you. And you can make it happen because there is the support out there that will help you get there.
1: We still to this day, even after after two years of this um, pandemic going on, that we'll hear, oh, I can't wait for the pandemic to be over because then I can just go back to normal or I can't wait until VCs stop investing in the restaurant industry. So things can go back to normal. And I think one of the big takeaways of the book is that this stuff is not happening to the restaurant industry. Uh, The restaurant industry is shifting, changing. These changes are unavoidable because the consumer is changing. Consumer expectations are changing. The technologies available are changing. And as all of that happens, uh, if you don't embrace it and say, wow, how can I take advantage of this? Because you can, and there's a lot of upside to it. um, It's just going to be painful the whole time, right? So I, I hope that everyone takes from it. These are real changes and I need to do this. You know, it can be hard when you're you know, a restaurant, and as you said, you're very busy, you're going from thing to thing, you're trying to solve problems, and you see an article pop up here or there, you know, a friend sends you something, and it's an article about robots, or it's an article about um, using TikTok to market to people, or something that you just, you don't do in your restaurant, it can feel very overwhelming of like, "Should, should I even pay attention to this? Maybe I shouldn't, right? And so I think what we've tried to do here is collect all of the bits and pieces to say, why it's happening, what kinds of things are happening, um, put them together in a narrative that is, um, feels a little bit less chaotic, maybe, um, so that people can uh, embrace the change and figure out how to take advantage of it.
0: And one of the ways that you wanna help restaurant operators is by this other learn delivery component that you have, um, you know, that's a part of the book. So can you tell me a little bit about that and uh, what it offers restaurant owners?
2: Yeah, so we uh, encourage those that have read the book to to register with us at learn.delivery. Um, that's the website URL there. And the reason we do that is is that we want to continue to help restaurants, quite honestly. Um, Meredith and I are not consultants. You know, we we do a bit of consulting, but the reality is is that we're only two people and there's a lot more out there that need the support. But what we do have is access to a vast level of resources and consultants out there that can help restaurants solve the problems that they need to have solved. Um, And also, because so much is changing, what we're doing is we have our uh, the Monday Minute podcast that goes out every Monday, which basically talks about five of the top headlines that we think would be of interest to the same people that read our book. And by that, we therefore can help people keep up to date with the amount of change, with the enormity of change. And so in that sense, we're trying to build a community of folks that are saying, OK, yes, this is for us. We want to go forward together. And Carl and Meredith are going to help us on that kind of journey.
0: Um, so put your thinking caps on. Um, so what do you think the future of food is going to be? You know, what are restaurants going to look like in five to ten years and you know, is, um, you know, is there going to be too much tech in restaurants? Um, you know, what it seems like we're in this kind of moment where everything is evolving and it's it's really quick. Um, so, you know, what do you, what do you really think the the dining either off-premise or on-premise is going to be like in five, 10 years?
2: Well, this is uh, my favorite chapter in the book is the last chapter where we actually asked every one of those folks that we interviewed, what is the industry going to look like in 2030 Um, and it was great it was fantastic just to get everyone's different projections Um, I'll I'll give you a snapshot without encouraging your readers to not avoid that but one of the things which we think is going to be um, important to point out is that the dining experience is clearly going to continue in fact we argue it's going to get even better um, because of the fact that perhaps there there will be less people going through it the importance of the the hospitality occasion itself the date night the occasion to celebrate that's going to need to enhance and I think that's going to be great. I think people are going to be able to go out to restaurants and enjoy it in a way that they've never been able to before. Um, but I do think there's going to be this other angle of it, which is going to help not only the dining experience, but also every other channel as well. And that is the role of customer data. And we haven't spent much time talking about that today. But but ultimately, I think if you can collate the data in a way that allows you to understand that consumer to do some of the personalization tactics that we were talking about before... You're going to get to a place where perhaps um, you're not going to have to make as many decisions around where you wish to eat because now there will be a plethora of different options that can be chosen for you based on the compilation of different data sources and those data sources could be what you've ordered before um, what your dietitian tells you you should be eating what your wearable is saying to you that you've worked out or not worked out today uh, and perhaps things like your personal trainer telling you that you need to d- burn a certain amount of calories each day. All of these things coming together might actually create a platform, potentially through a blockchain type interface, which allows you to actually say, well, Carl, based on what you've done up to now, you need to have a green chicken salad tonight. Um, and now that might scare some people, <laughs> but I think it's something which tells me that our knowledge around food, our access to more vari- variety of food types, uh, and our culinary inquisition is gonna to continue to heighten over the kind of next 10 years. And that is going to make us really enjoy food better, but also make sure we're making healthy decisions for ourselves as well.
1: Also, going to see technology get easier. You are right, Barbara, we are in this moment where everyone has a new idea. Every new idea can get funded. There are a million companies out there all trying to tell restaurants why their thing is the greatest thing. Um, you know, we talked to one, one uh small chain restaurateur as we were going through this process writing the book, who told us that he gets 10 phone calls or emails a day from salespeople. And he just he can't can't possibly look at them all, definitely can't respond to them all. And that's pretty overwhelming, I think, right now for restaurants. And as we move forward, I expect to see some consolidation. Um, Among those different tools, I also expect to see uh, potentially the creation of like a restaurant operating system, I'll call it, where kind of everything you need is in one place, in particular for the smaller guys, Um, possibly uh, app stores on the larger platforms, Um, definitely more open API structures, um, which you are already starting to see with some of the POS companies that make it easier to um, plug different things into it. Um, So that you can decide, you know, I like this loyalty thing the best, but I need them to talk to each other. I think all of that's going to get a lot easier right now. um, Yes, it is like so overwhelming because there are so many choices and there's so much innovation happening and every, every innovative idea is its own company right now, which is a little tough.